I want to ask you a question this morning, and you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Uh, that's going to be our passage, but I want to ask you how long it takes for a good thing to become corrupted. Like, how long does that really take? It doesn't take long sometimes, and, and sometimes it's surprising how fast it actually happens. When you read about things like the law of unintended consequences, you're familiar with that, that when we make a decision, oftentimes there's something downstream that maybe we could not have predicted or maybe that we didn't actually think through, and that good thing kind of becomes a little bit corrupted. Mark Manson has, has written on this a little bit, and, and, and he talks about how the law of unintended consequences has played itself out and how the United States Forest Service has had to adapt to things. So, for instance, uh, in 1905, the United States Forest Service was created to do something pretty good because the West, in particular, was being ravaged by wildfires. And so they implemented some processes to try to control that. What they said was, we're going to put burn bans in effect at certain times of the year, and we're going to station people around so that we can put out wildfires as fast as they might pop up. And many of you, maybe as you've been in forest service lands, you've climbed an old fire tower or something like that. You've, you've seen those kinds of things. It's really cool to be able to do that. And for a few decades, what happened was that the fires really were, were held under control and the devastation didn't happen. But a few decades later, wildfires were worse than they'd ever been. Why is that? It's funny that it turns out you actually need to burn things to keep forests healthy because all that dead wood they were protecting that was falling was, was now coming back and it was, it was not a controlled burn. It was a burn that was, was taking off and, and it was worse. And so forest service had to adapt and make some changes about how they were doing things. I mean, so, so that's not surprising, is it, that there would be a law of unintended consequences. Well, today we're going to see how Jesus responded to a group of people, and the idea that he was trying to get them to see is that religion actually never changed anything. And he dismantles religion with these leaders as a way to salvation, and he points out a hypocrisy that was existing in their lives. Now, I don't want any of us to miss the most important lesson of what we're going to talk about today from this scripture, is that religion, while it might be a little helpful, will never save you. Let me be very clear. Being Baptist, it might be a little useful, not gonna save you. That sounds funny to say in a Baptist church, doesn't it? But it's just the way that it is. It won't do it. Nothing about being Baptist gives you a, a leg up on somebody. It, it doesn't work that way. Because remember, there were people being saved long before there were Baptists. Amen? Let me try again. Right? You, you, you know that, right? If you didn't know that, heaven's going to be very interesting for you. You know what I mean? You've heard the joke. St. Peter is taking someone on a tour of heaven and he's goes by the Pentecostals and they're praising the Lord and it's just wonderful and they join in for a moment and, and they go by another group and St. Peter says, shh, be quiet. Why do we have to be quiet? It's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. You know, <laughs> it's not the way that it works. It doesn't work that way. So, so you understand that religion is not the point of anything that we're trying to get you to see here ever. It's not the point. 
And I want to be clear with that because I hate it when we confuse that, and I think we do sometimes without meaning to, and we're all susceptible to this. Religion won't save you because a relationship with Christ is what transforms you. So let's read the scripture and see what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 11. Now we're going to begin in verse 37. It says, as he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, when the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. Fools, didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. So I just set the scene for you. Jesus has been teaching, and most people believe that he's been in the synagogue teaching. And so this is kind of not the first meal of the day, but kind of that second starting meal of the day that we might call lunch is what's going on. And he's invited by a Pharisee to come and have dinner. So this Pharisee seems to be at least open to the fact that Jesus might have something to say that would be good for him or, or good for someone in his home to listen to. So they come and they sit down. And as they sit down, what would have happened is that there would have been some water in a basin that was considered purified, passed around, and they would have started at the tips of your fingers and poured it over your water, uh, over your water over your hands, until it started to run kind of to the cuffs of your sleeve, and then you would have stopped and rubbed your hands like this with your fist, and then you would have placed your hands down and washed one more time like that. And Jesus doesn't do that. He just sits down and, and starts eating. Now, our translation that we read this morning used the word that the Pharisee was amazed. Now, not amazed in like, how cool. It's not that kind of amazement. It's the idea of, of being surprised or astonished that happens here. He, he's like, wait, Jesus, you didn't do the ritual washing. Everybody does the ritual washing. I do the ritual washing. We all do the ritual washing. What's up? So it's, it's kind of like he's saying, what's up with that? What are you doing? But he doesn't say it. But Jesus knows it. And Jesus kind of fires off a statement about the outside of the cup not being as important as the inside of the cup, right? It's, a, it's not about clean hands and clean dishes if we have stuff on the inside that's corrupting us. And Jesus says, you can clean the outside all you want and you do this little washing thing and that's all great, but your heart has evil in it and it has greed in it and you need to make sure that you're dealing with the heart first. Now, if I could just say to you one thing this morning, God is most concerned with our hearts about everything else because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth then speaks, right? The issues of the heart then determine life, the scripture says. So, so out of our hearts become the transformation and it starts to work out. So it's an inside thing, not an outside thing. And if we miss that, and a lot of times we do, because we want people to modify behaviors before their heart has been changed. It doesn't work that way. Behavior modification is something that we're taking from the outside world. That, that's a, a clinical, psychological thing that we bring inside. That, that's not what Jesus is about. He's not about your behavior being modified. He's about your heart being transformed because then it will naturally flow 
that guess what? Your behavior will modify. But if we start with people and try to get them to modify first, they might have better behavior but still be on the road to hell. Doesn't work. Now what Jesus is saying is you actually can't separate the outside from the inside. Now we love to do that because it's actually easier for us to do something on the outside than is the inside, isn't it? I mean, it really is. If you think about it, uh, is it easier to be a good husband all year or post a Valentine's Day message on social media about your wife? I mean, did you wash the dishes this year? Uh-oh. Now don't go meddling, pastor. <laughs> I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I did did you help? Did you, what, what's easier? Is it easier to, to, to create a, a curated image of family or to raise a good family? I mean, what's easier, the outside or the inside? God's not looking for performance, but transformation. Understand what I just said, because when you get this, it will free you up in something. God is not looking for performance, but transformation. Many years ago, I had led a Bible study on pride because the Lord had just been convicting me that pride was not what I had always thought it was because a lot of times we think of pride as being somebody who's braggadocious, right? You know, you show up and they're the person that says, man, I did this and I'm great. I did that is pride, but pride can also be smug and kind of internal, an attitude. Pride could be when you're critical of everything. Why am I critical of everything? Because I believe I could do it better. So we might say things to our friends like, you know, my boss is an idiot. Oh, really? And you're a genius. Hmm, is that prideful? Well, I was going through this Bible study and, and the Lord was really convicting me that it's the matter of the heart. It, it wasn't a braggadocious thing for me, it was a matter of the heart. And it was a matter of how I treated people and how I could be dismissive of people. It's a great Bible study. Until that week, I had to go to Little Caesars and pick up some pizzas. We were having an event for a life group class, doing all this stuff, and, and we're trying to get it done, you know, and I've ordered this stuff in advance. They know me. We have a good relationship. I'm going to pick up these things, and I get there, and do you think those pizzas were ready? It's like they'd never heard from me that day. My blood was boiling. Because I'm like, what is the point of having a number that you call, and you place an order if I walk in, and you go, who are you? You know? And the Lord was like, how's that pride going today? What's easier, to teach a Bible study on pride or to get rid of your pride? Which is easier for us? Well, what had happened is, that these folks had lost their charitable spirit. And this is pointed out as these descriptors when Jesus says that you're evil and greedy on the inside and you don't care about the poor. You're just collecting for yourself instead of doing what you're supposed to do. Now what comes after this starts to get really brutal because Jesus is going to give six different woes and we're going to see them in three different groups. And we're going to see an, an instead of statement in each one of them, if you're taking notes. Each one of them will have an instead of statement that Jesus is trying to, to do. But I want you to think about the difference between a woe and a blessing. If we go back and, and we read Matthew chapter 5 and we read the Beatitudes, blessed are those who. Imagine the opposite of that 
when Jesus is speaking a woe here, and, and it might be that we would think that, that he's really condemning, but I think his heart is breaking because these are people that should know better. So here's the problem this morning. If you're a leader in our church, this message is for you. You're a pastor in our church. This hits close to home. Because these things are, are so easy for us to confuse and we miss what's really important by doing things that aren't important. So let's go back to this law of unintended consequences. How, how much is, is, is it take to corrupt something that's good? Well, God had given the moral law and then the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders had started an oral law, a traditional law. That sounds good. Hey, there's a couple of things we've noticed that we could kind of correct if we did this. And everybody kind of, oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, let's do that. But before too long, what you're going to see is the law of unintended consequences was it had removed all relationship and all it had placed on people was a burden that they couldn't live under. Let's read these. The first three woes deal with the smallest of details. So I'm gonna read 11, chapter 11, verse 42 through 44. But woe to you, but woe to you Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint and rue and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you who are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't even know it. What an interesting thing Jesus starts to talk about. He's talking about woes about the smallest of details. The first woe that he gave there is that he says, you guys are choosing option over obedience. Option instead of obedience. It's options instead of obedience. They were picking and choosing rather than obeying at all. Because what's easier to do? Is it easier to tithe or practice justice or love for God? Which one's easiest? I can control the tithe. I mean, that's, that's easy. It, it, it's easy for me to, to go into my garden as they were doing and, and, and they're tithing down to the smallest details, the, the very smallest things that they have. I mean, they are particular about it and that's a good thing, but I'm choosing to neglect something else. What were they choosing to neglect? They were choosing to neglect the practice of justice. Is justice important to the Lord? It sure is. Go back and read what Micah says about how to please God. Uh, you, you begin to see that, that those things are a little more complicated and to make sure that justice, that we stand for those things. Is it easier to love God or to just get caught up in doing little things for God? Oh, well, I control all of this. But I don't have to really be in a relationship. I don't have to spend time with. I don't have to have the Lord have all of my heart but it's not what God wants. In fact, he says that you can't pick and choose on this one. He says both are important. And I want you to, to just notice this because it, it is really important that he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, the tithing is good. Now, this is my public service announcement. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about stewardship. Some of you might be inclined to say, every time I come to this church, all they do is talk about money. That is true. Once every February, we do. So that means we haven't seen you since last February. So 
We'd love for you to be here next week so that we can talk about these things because the Lord talks a lot about it. And so every year we spend time talking about stewardship. Why? Because it's at the forefront of your mind. It's at the forefront of my mind. Money, the issues of things, it's the forefront of all of our minds. And, and if you may say this morning, well, I already tithe. Good for you. That's great. Do you love God? Are you pursuing justice? Do you have a heart for the Lord? The, these things aren't, aren't exclusive of one another. The next thing that he says is that they were bypassing, neglecting it, disregarding it. We don't need to be proud about what we do while we neglect the things that God's told us to do. So it was option instead of obedience. The next woe that he gives is a woe of status instead of service. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if our church this morning was laid out like the synagogue was? In the synagogues at the front, what they had were, were seats that were faced out like this that faced the audience. People who were important sat there. How many of you remember when our, our platforms, our, our, our stages used to have the four big chairs on them up there, you know? I'm so glad I don't have to sit there and look at you and you look at me. It's just awkward. I much prefer that some time ago, I don't know when it happened here, but those chairs were gone when I got here and praise the Lord for it. Uh, but, but they were seats of importance. And then what happened is from front to back were seats of importance. And notice what he's saying. You guys love the status. You love it when you get to come in and sit and everybody looks up to you and it's really important. And what people think about you is more important than you serving people. Well, Jesus is very different, isn't he? He has no status. Do you remember that when there was a young man that wanted to follow Jesus and he said, well, yeah, come on and hang out with me. But remember, foxes have places to stay. They have dens. I don't even have a house. I just go wherever. We have nothing. You want to still come? You want to be on a three-year extended camping trip with me? That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be hanging out where the Lord leads us, uh, where God the Father leads us, and, and we'll stay in place. But we're not building something for ourselves here. And these guys love to be recognized. That's why he talks about in the marketplace. They loved it when people would come up with these elaborate greetings and, and just love on them and, and talk about how good they were and how important that were. And, and you know, for all of us this morning, what a reminder that we weren't called to a status. We were called to service. Jesus said that no servants above the master. He's washing the disciples' feet. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so for us, as we think about these things, in any place, is there any part of our lives that we're like, oh, you know, I've finally made it. I have been recognized for what I have been doing at the church. Ooh. That's dangerous. Now, I like a good pat on the back just like you do too. And it's important that we affirm people for what they're doing, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, but that's a different thing than what we're talking about here, isn't it? When, when I get to the point where there's some job in the church that's too big for me or, or, or I can't do that anymore, I've done that and I... That's, who am I? Who are you? When we get to that place, and Jesus is saying, you, you've got it all wrong. It's not about status. It's about service. Third thing that he said to them 
was that they were defiling instead of delivering. Now, this one might be a little hard for us to understand, and, and I, I want to help you do it because he said to them, woe to you, Pharisees, or I'm sorry, woe to you, you like the, you're like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't even know it. And what he's saying to them is that for a Jew, anytime they came in contact with a dead body or a grave or something like that, it was a seven-day cleansing time for them to be out of fellowship. They, they can't come into the synagogue. They can't come into the temple because they are considered unclean. They have to be outside and perform the seven-day waiting period before they can come back. And it's, a, it's an idea about diseases for sure taking place and controlling those kinds of things. So imagine this, if you're defiling yourself by walking across unmarked graves and you don't even know it, and you're showing back up at the temple and you're defiling everything around you, and what he's saying to them is, you're not delivering anybody, but you're defiling them. Jesus is saying, you guys are like hidden graves. People come around you and they don't even realize they're not being delivered out of their sin. They're getting defiled by you. Oh, well, I guess we're done with the pleasantries now, aren't we, Jesus? You can imagine what that dinner table must have been like at this point. There's somebody over there like, can I have another roll? right? It's tough. What's happening here? It's funny because these people looked the part. They were well thought of by everybody, but they were totally involved in the smallest of details and they had forgotten the big picture of what was going on. And so imagine the religious man, the religious woman, they looked the part, People hang out with them, never get any better. They never get any better. They're never delivered from the sin that they're in. They're never pushed forward in discipleship. They get worse because nobody ever points the big picture to them. They're messed up by it. You say, well, I mean, what does that look like? Oh, have you ever been part of a church business meeting? People started arguing about things that did not matter. Years ago, before I was ever here, you guys adopted a business model for a church to run, so those things were less likely to happen. Are you concerned with the smallest of details? Can I ask you a question? Does it really matter what color we paint the walls? No. Are you free to have an opinion about it? Sure. Who cares? My opinion, your opinion, it's just paint, man. And people get all kinds of crazy about that. Well, I was on the last committee that did this. I've done, da, da. Is that why we're here? Hmm. Prides in position. All those kinds of things are tough. And you can imagine that as Jesus is going through this, it's not sitting very well. Look at verse 45. Because one of the experts in the law answers him and says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. You can imagine, right? He's like, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but you were invited here. You didn't have to come. And 
And are you trying to be offensive? Because when you say these things, it's hurting our feelings. It, it insults us. And you might expect that Jesus would go, sorry about that. And instead, he doubles down and gives them three more. And I want you to see this because he's not done yet. And now he goes into three woes on legalism. So he's gone into the details. You guys are lost in the details, as we would say, you're lost in the weeds. Now I'm from the country. You ever heard this? You're a green ball lost in high weeds. That's what he's saying to them. You guys are like a green ball lost in high weeds. And now he says, you're lost in legalism. Listen to these three woes. And, and I wanna just, just read this for you uh, very, very quickly because Jesus kind of does this. He says, what are the experts in the law? You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, but you don't touch them. Woe to you who build tombs for the prophets and your fathers killed them. Therefore, your witnesses and approve of the deeds that your fathers did. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. Woe to you experts in the law. You've taken away the key to knowledge and you didn't go in yourselves. You hindered those who were trying to go in. So let's look at these three. He starts by saying, you value tradition instead of truth. So this idea again of, of the Mosaic law. When, when you boil the Mosaic law down, there are 10, right? There's 10 commandments that are given to us about how to live morally. When we get into the book of Leviticus and stuff, you get into a lot of the minutia of how a nation is going to have to live and how a nation that has God as their leader, they're a theocracy, is going to have to follow things in worshipful practice. So we might confuse that by saying the Bible's a book of rules. Well, it's actually not. But in the same way that we would say there's a legal code for the United States, that's all part of that. But think about it. It's 10 basic laws. 10. But the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they're adding to this all the time and it becomes crippling. So, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now it becomes, you know, you can't light a candle on the Sabbath because that's work. You can't cook a meal on the Sabbath. That's work. You can only travel X number of steps from your house. No kidding. People are like marking off the steps they can go on the Sabbath. You can't carry anything on the Sabbath. Remember the, the paralytic man that was, was healed and Jesus said, take up your mat and go and everybody's all, all, all on him. What are you doing carrying that mat? I was healed. Well, you shouldn't be carrying the mat. I was healed. The guy that healed me told me to take the mat and go home. Tradition over truth. And now here's the thing though. The leaders aren't having to deal with any of the consequences of these things because they're the ones throwing them out for everybody, but it's now become crippling. So much so that Jesus reminds them later that Sabbath was actually created for whom? For man. Why? Because we needed it. Because God knows that you need rest. God knows that I need rest. And you know what it wasn't created for? It wasn't created for, for man to, to bless God in the Sabbath. That, that's not what it's for. Oh, 
You mean we had that wrong the whole time? We were trying to just do right by making sure everyone was basically paralyzed in their thinking and their actions so they couldn't do anything. How do you eat? What do you do if something falls on the floor? Legalism starts to, to, to make you a little bit nutty because it, it puts a conscience in you that you don't need. We were talking about this uh, in our Wednesday night Bible study as we were talking about uh, the atonement this week and, and we were talking about this famous line that John Stott, English theologian, said so long ago. A, a conscience that, that is, is pricked and is guilty is great as long as it runs you back to God. Remember the prodigal son? He's, he's hanging out, feeding pigs, and all of a sudden he came to his senses. And what does he do? He runs home. But a conscience that makes you almost what I would say, like neurotic, like, I don't know if I should do this. I do. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's legalism coming over your life, invading into the details of things that, that God never spoke to. Next thing he talks about is, you guys love monuments instead of the message. So these folks were building these gilded tombs for prophets that their parents and grandparents had killed. What did they miss? They missed the very message of the prophet. They hadn't changed. But oh man, let's erect a monument to this man. He was a great guy. Now we killed him as our parents killed him and everything, but he was a good guy. We ought to, we ought to hold him in high esteem. We're not gonna do anything he says. We're missing the message. We might do the same today. We esteem the Bible. We hold it in high regard. We might have one prominently displayed in our homes. We might have a family Bible that, that tracks all those things that have happened in our family. And yet, when we don't live by the message, what good is it to hold up the word of God is holy. I've often found it funny when, when we were watching America go through this thing where they were taking the Ten Commandments out of public places. You know, that was a big thing for a season. And somebody asked me once, I wonder all these people that are mad about the Ten Commandments being gone, if they could even find them in the Bible. Oops. Well, what's more important, the monument or the message that they bring to us? The final woe that he gives is perhaps the most damaging or we might even say damning of all because he says, you guys are hiding instead of helping. You're hiding instead of helping. They had taken the key to salvation, which was faith, and they'd removed it from the equation. Paul tells us that we're saved by grace through faith. And this isn't new. Remember that Abraham was justified by his faith. Go read Hebrews chapter 11. And it talks about all these Old Testament saints being approved by their faith. Not because they were law keepers. Not because they added to the law. Not because they lived some puritanical lifestyle. That wasn't it. They weren't perfect. But what they were is they were people living by faith, trying to follow the Lord and believing what he said was true and living by it. And he says about these folks, 
You guys have taken the key to salvation and you've hidden it. He said, I am him. And what you're doing is you're removing it and you just want everything to be based on performance. And if we get everybody to act the right way and we get them to do the right things, then we'll all be better off for it. Jesus says, no, you're not helping things. You're hindering people from coming into the kingdom. Well, how do we take all of this and apply it to our lives today? Because I, I want to say to you that before we get into this, it's not as if the law of God doesn't matter. Don't, don't, don't hear me say that. It does matter. It's not as if God's standard in our lives are optional for us. We saw that earlier. You do one thing and you bypass or neglect another and you're real proud of yourself for doing one, but you're not loving the Lord. You're not having a heart for God. You've missed it. So it's not as if they, they don't matter. They, they do matter because God is specific about things in the way that they should be. But I want you to think about three things with me this morning as we apply this. The, the first that I'd have you think about is that legalism negates everything. Now, this is a funny term because if you didn't grow up in church in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you've never known legalism probably. But it, it, it's a funny thing that, that kind of starts to, to poke its head up and invades a little bit of what we're doing from time to time. And, and it's always well-meaning, isn't it? It always starts off well-meaning. But how many of you grew up where we talked a lot about pants for women, jewelry, Length of hair for men. Well, you can't be saved and have long hair. Really? Huh. That hair better not touch your collar. I don't know. You think anybody in the first century had a collar like we wear? Probably not. Where does that come from? Well, it's probably well-intentioned, isn't it? It probably starts at a place, but what starts to happen is we're saying that the outside's more important than the inside. How you appear, the way things are, more important than this, and we begin to add these things. And it's all dependent on where you're at and oftentimes who the leader is. Be careful of these things. When you start getting things that are now what we would call extra biblical, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We want to go to the scripture. We want to follow the scripture. We want to make sure that we're, we're doing our best to have a heart for the Lord and obedience in those things. But adding things to people won't make them more holy. It doesn't work. Holiness comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Secondly, positive legalism is just as bad. Now, I want you to hear me through the end of this before you're all ready to kill me. Positive legalism is just as bad. So for instance, if you teach in our children's ministry, you teach in our Awana ministry, is it most important that kids finish their book or that they learn the word of God? What's most important? They can be one and the same, can't they? But it's real subtle, isn't it, how we can make a, a shift. Oops. 
We teach in our student ministry and we start to say, this is what good students do. They do these things, they do these things. And it kind of becomes a, a culture of positive peer pressure. It's not always bad, is it? But do you see how quickly it can make a shift? How about this one? This made its way uh, through the churches uh, not too long ago. Pastors, we're guilty of this too. Everybody needs to read the Bible this year all the way through. Where is that in the Bible? Can you find it? Is it bad to read the Bible all the way through in a year? Of course not. That's an interesting challenge if you so choose to undertake it, but that, that's not a, a measure of your holiness or, or that you've really accomplished something. And, and what we may find is that, like I find in my life sometimes, I'm going through my devotional time and I'm checking it off so that I can be a good little Christian boy because I had my devotion today. And I checked it off and I didn't meet with the Lord. I just did something. Do you see the difference? That's a positive legal. You need to have your quiet time every day. What do you do every day? Do you work out every day? I don't be lying in church. Do you eat how you're supposed to every day? What do you do every day? Now, don't hear me say we shouldn't have quiet times. Should we have quiet times? Yes. Should we encourage a, a positive kind of peer pressure amongst our students? Yes. Should we teach kids to memorize the Bible? Yes. But do you see how we can add a burden to somebody they don't need? Why do we have a devotional time? I'll say this to I'm blue in the face. Because we can. What a privilege it is for us to be able to do that. We're one of the, the first generations that has the ability and the tools to do it the way that we do it. I mean, it's, it's a greatest privilege that we could have. On two occasions, I have wondered if the Lord was going to be very angry with me when I left this place. And they both revolved around people coming to me talking about the weight of legalism surrounding their quiet times. And I kind of winced and then said, I dare you not to have one this week. What? Well, don't have one this week. What do you mean? Well, how about instead of checking off a box, why don't you turn on some praise music and just sing your favorite songs to the Lord? Why don't you take a walk and just be in the majesty of God? Now, should that replace our quiet time all the time? No, it shouldn't. Should we read the word? We should. But do you see how easy it is for us to become kind of positive legalists? Everybody needs to do what we're doing. Everybody needs to do what I think about this. Everybody needs to do that. And if you're not careful, do you see what happens? Very quickly, you remove all the heart out of it. And you're going through the motions, you're doing all the stuff, and no transformation's taking place. Finally, to our parents, if I could give you a word of warning about this, it would be, be careful with the rules in your house. Be careful with them. Everybody needs rules. They're like guideposts that keep us kind of centered on the road. We need them. But be careful that law doesn't replace love. That's hard for us sometimes. 
especially when we have a child who's not obeying the rules. We want to add more and more and more and more and more and more. It's hard. But what I love about the new covenant that God said he was going to give us in Jeremiah 31, he said he was going to write the law on their hearts. Give enough boundary to keep things from running off the road. Be careful, be careful, please, that you don't turn your family into the codified law of the United States where you have a rule book this big. Give them the boundaries and trust that God's going to do something amazing when he changes your child's heart. Because when your child comes to know the Lord, you will see a difference. So the boundaries are important. I believe in boundaries. I'm a law and order kind of guy. But law without love doesn't work. So make sure that they're sensing the love that you have for the Lord, the love that you have for them, and be mindful of that. So here's where we are this morning. Are you hung up in your performance for the Lord? I lived a lot of my life like that because I believed that God was like my school teacher that had a cosmic chalkboard. My school teacher always had my name on her cosmic chalkboard because I like to talk. And so there was a good side and a bad side of a line with my name on it and other students. And when we did something good, we got a good check. Good job on that, Jeffrey. Do something bad, ooh, talking to your neighbor, bad check. And at the end of the day, if your good checks outweighed the bad checks, life was good. And I kind of transferred that over to my relationship with the Lord. Like he was just sitting around taking notes. That's not really a relationship, is it? Jesus said, you're my friends. I've called you friends. If you feel kind of weighed down by that burden today, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to have a moment with you about that because the freedom that we have in Christ is not freedom to throw off all restraint. Certainly not but it's to live in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you find legalism in your life, you often don't find joy. Maybe you find yourself throwing some of those extra biblical things on people as you judge them for what they're not doing or what they look like or what they... Let the Lord get rid of that this morning. We want to be people that don't bypass what's most important for things that are important. So I want to pray for us right now. Father, I would ask this morning that in your presence, we would begin to understand what it is like to live with the joy of the Lord. Father, forgive us as leaders when we have inserted things that don't need to be there. Our Father, we've judged people for 
maybe appearance things that just don't matter. The heart is what matters. God, would you help us to to major on what's most important? And that's that our hearts would be turned towards you. And out of that, you transform us to be obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, for the person here this morning that has never given their life to you, they don't even know that religion isn't the answer. Would you let them see that Jesus is the answer? God, would you do great things today? And we ask this in the precious name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.